Hello, everybody. It's Mike. You're on the Phil Kraus Survival Podcast. Hey, guys, this podcast is sponsored. Our first sponsor is Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Designed by humans for humans, Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Look, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so it should be comfortable, right? The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep service that cradles your natural geometry. I'm a big boy. I got lots of geometry. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep service with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. I said bounce. Breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars on Casper, Amazon, Google, it's becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Casper offers two other mattresses, the Wave and Essential. The Wave, which is my favorite, features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body, and the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. Casper also offers a wide array of other products, pillow sheets, you name it, they got it. All designed, developed, and assembled here in the great United States of America. Affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middle guys and sells directly to you with hassle-free returns if you're not satisfied. And believe me, you will be satisfied. Delivered right to your door in a small how-they-do-that-size box, free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. You could be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep on it. Who does that? Nobody offers that anymore. 100-night risk-free. 100 nights. Look, hey, if you guys are interested in picking up a Casper, I could save you $50 towards any mattresses that casper.com backslash fieldcraft will get you to. Using fieldcraft at checkout, you'll save 50 bucks. Remember, casper.com, www.casper.com backslash fieldcraft. That's one word, F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T. Hey, of note, only applicable to select mattresses and purchases and terms and conditions apply. That's standard. That's how it works. Thanks, guys. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Boss Strongbox. Boss Strongbox is a partner with Fieldcraft Survival. If you're interested in storing any of your gear, overland gear, tactical gear, hell, soccer balls, whatever you want, you could pick up a Boss Strongbox and save 25% today off your purchase using Fieldcraft at checkout. 25% is our biggest discount discount code. 25% at BossStrongbox.com. Thanks, guys. Let's kick it off. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike G. I'm back from the Go Rig Challenge. I want to say uh, it was a challenge indeed. Hey, you know, today's podcast, we're talking about tacticians. And I wanted to kind of articulate and talk a little bit more in depth about some things that I discussed on social media about the three types of tacticians. And um, I'm doing this live on Instagram as well. So if you're tuning in um, at the end of the podcast, I'll ask questions. Um, so tacticians, um, I was driving on the Go Rig Challenge, had plenty of time to think about a lot of stuff, which is, is great. It's an opportunity for me to kind of decompress, but also spin some, spin some wheels and, and think about some processes in business and life, et cetera. And I think it was in the back roads of uh, Utah 
and started thinking about the tactical space. And, you know, if you guys follow me on Instagram at mike.a.glover, you know, I'm not a big fan of the industry, the gun industry and the tactical industry. The reason that is, is because I spent, obviously I spent a lot of time in special operations. I've actually been in the SHOT Show several times representing U.S. Army Special Operations Command and can tell you that a lot of the things that the industry does takes advantages or takes advantage of the um, members of special operations. And I don't think that's debatable. Maybe, maybe somebody who debates me doesn't understand the complexities of it and hasn't been privy to those conversations or those types of things taking place. But I could tell you from personal experience representing uh, Special Operations Command in the Army that it does happen. And it's, an, it's not an unexpected, right? It's a, a business. The tactical space, the gun industry is a, a business, and it's for profit, right? You want to make money. But the reality is there's a lot of convolution that's taking place in the tactical industry over uh, who's the subject matter expert and also who civilians are listening to to get information. And what you're seeing is a is disinformation and miseducation that can translate into catastrophes, into dangerous things happening. You know, uh, one of the analogies that I, I spoke upon is like, hey, if you watch somebody and they're doing retracted gun, let's say they're 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 doing a retracted pistol uh, from a draw, so they're you know they have the pistol aligned with their abdomen and they're shooting a target. Well, that's really cool in a one minute you know, clickbait kind of way on social media, but without further explanation of when that tactic should be utilized, it's dangerous. I mean, people who see that, right, who are uneducated, they see it and they think it's cool. They go out and practice it. And then when they're in a self-defense situation, a lot of the, a lot of the times the way your brain works and the way your physical body uh, uh, is used under stress, it doesn't translate. And so, uh, the tactic could be executed and under the wrong circumstance, and that could lead you in prison or, or, or worse, lead you where you're injured or killed because of your misunderstanding of something. And so my only, my only motivation in talking about this is bring seriousness back to the tactical space and industry because the reality is it's not a fucking game. I mean, these kids out here, and I call them kids and they're grown-ass men, are out here demonstrating these tactics on flat ranges, acting like ass clowns, and potentially, um, you know, it's like the media. When the media does something stupid, we hold them to a higher standard. And so when you have somebody who's supposed to be professional acting like a jackass on the range, and somebody sees that who's impressionable, and then they follow suit, that sets them up for disasters. And that's, that's what I'm talking about here. One of the, the ways I broke down the, uh, the three types of tac- tacticians, let's, let's go one by one. The first one is the philosopher. The philosopher uses theory to discuss complexity of the mind and the body during the conduct of a gunfight, typically associates their own point of view and experiences as the solution, shapes his or her tactics to fit the narrative, and often rever- references or cites a friend, maybe a friend of a friend that's been in a gunfight, and they're a master of theory but never been in a gunfight. You know, breaking down the philosopher, it's those, it's those guys or gals who are communicating about uh, their theoretical rhetoric uh, 
their their reason for doing things in the tactical space and typically overcomplicating uh, the tactics. Uh, an example would be something as simple as a draw stroke. They'll break it down and then talk about the minutia and then and then and then overcomplicate a simple process or a simple movement for their own proprietorship, right? It's for their own business or for their own voice or for their own empowerment. The reality is a lot of that stuff that's based in theory isn't practical and doesn't apply to the real world. And that's okay. But again, my problem with that is when somebody does that and and they influence a lot of people to do dumb shit, that's what I mean. Uh, That's why we need to talk about it and need to flush that out. And again, this podcast is about education, less about bashing people on social media who are doing dumb shit. Uh, but the reality is you need to be aware of this. The next tactician is the scientist. And I, you know, lack of better terms, you know, I'm not, no insult to scientists who actually apply the scientific, um, uh, you know, the scientific uh, uh, process where they're actually applying uh, the scientific method and experiments and everything else. But the scientist tactician is somebody who's more analytical, and they're providing evidence on scorable targets, on shot timers. They're creating narratives of justification through what they deem metrics, and they analyze this information and kind of use a scientific method or their best approach to scientific method, and they get really creative in devising these experiments to debunk the philosopher, these theories, because they could do it on a drill. And these are proprietary drills, right? These are drills they invent on the flat range, and they become the masters of the flat range. But again, never been in a gunfight. And so the analogy that I use is, the analogy I use is, if you're really good at throwing a football in your backyard, let's say, let's say you've been doing it for a decade, and so you're an outlier. You got 10,000 hours of reps of throwing a football in a backyard, you could take a tire and from 15 to 25 yards, you could throw that football through the, through the, uh, uh, the inside of that tire from a distance. And so you feel accomplished. You could throw that football to your friends on the move. Well, does that translate and mean that when you hit the football field in the NFL that you're going to be successful? It, it doesn't. So you could be a master of the flat range and absolutely have no applicable experience or translation of, uh, of application to the real world. And, and I've seen that a lot. So l- l- let me give you the example. The example is institutionally, a lot of tactical institutions that teach marksmanship and tax- tactics teach their men and women to get in a fighting stance, for example. So they say, hey, when you're in a gunfight, we want you to get an aggressive stance. We want you to lower your posture. We want you to sprawl your legs, bend at your knees, and then we want you to get into a position like you're going to fight for your life physically. But the, the problem is uh, you're not physically in a, a combatant fight. You're us- utilizing a tool, a weapon system. And so what I've seen is, depending on the institution, a lot of these a lot of people take too much time getting into a fighting position. So let's say, for example, you're on patrol or you're a patrol officer and you're in a status that's, uh, let's call it yellow for lack of better uh, 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 elemental uh, verbiage. Yellow is 
uh, a condition in which you're just kind of in between, uh, you're heightened, but you're not over heightened. And then all of a sudden something kicks off. Let's say somebody points a gun at you and then your muscle memory, right? Or uh, your motor skill units uh, make you get into a position where you drop your posture, drop your legs, sprawl out a little bit, bend at your knees, get your head down into the optics. Well, that takes time. And the problem is in a gunfight, which I've heard actually brief before, where somebody said a gunfight has nothing to do with speed and accuracy. It's the complete opposite. It has everything to do with speed and accuracy and the balance of those two. And so let's say you go to get in that fighting stance. Well, you're, one, you're taking time. Two, you don't need to get in a fighting stance because the only justification that I've seen for fighting stance is to keep your knees loaded to allow you to move off the X uh, in, in a fast amount of time. So there's not a lot of ju- good justification, except that institutionally, it sets you up for, for a regime on a flat range, for safety, for protocol, for this institutional parameter, right? Because when you have a, you know, have a line of 20 people and they're doing the same thing where they get down into a fighting stance, it's institutionally, as an SOP, um, it, dress right dress. The problem is it's not tied into reality. So I asked the question early on in law enforcement or training law enforcement, hey, why are you doing that? They go, well, that's what you should do. Well, give me the justification why you should do that. Some people say, I don't need to give you a justification, and that's the wrong answer because anytime somebody discusses tactics, it should be an open forum discussion. Well, let's say we get past that, and they say, well, here's a justification. You have to manage recoil. Well, we've debunked that. You don't have to manage recoil because you manage recoil in the way you manipulate your joints and your hands. So there's no need to uh, to, uh, uh, utilize your body to do that. And then the other one is uh, plates forward. Yeah, I could see that, but naturally nobody walks through a front door or through a threshold with their uh, body turned sideways. We shoot isosceles. So if we shoot isosceles, that means that we gotta have to be squared up anyway. So we don't even have to talk about that. So then what's the other justification? The other one is, oh, we're, we're, uh, you know, we have to get into a fighting stance because we have to be aggressive. Well, you're not waiting to take an impact physically you know, you're not waiting to sprawl or lower your level to get balance or leverage. You're trying to draw your gun and shoot as fast as possible. So any additional movement doesn't work. And so if we get past that conversation, then the answer is, or the ask, the question is, where did you learn that from? And typically the answer is, somebody taught me. And then where did that person get it from? Well, that's how we've done it, and somebody taught me. And so institutionally, you see a lot of these tactics being taught because somebody else taught them whether they were a scientist or they were a philosopher, all right? So, so when you look at a scientist, for example, a scientist tactician, it could be a professional shooter. There's a lot of justification to listen to a professional shooter because technically they're proficient. They shoot paper and steel for a living, and they have mastered efficiency in gun handling, movement, and shooting. That's an important element. Let me move on to the practitioner real quick. A practitioner, here's what I wrote for a practitioner. A philosopher until they volunteered for war. A scientist until they trained for war. Became a practitioner when they went to war. Listens and learns from the scientist and philosopher to apply practical application. Has been in a gunfight. Is it possible to learn from all three? So as a practitioner, listen, I'm not, 
a lot of veterans and a lot of people in this space might boast about being to combat because they think that that is the end all be all. I don't agree. I know plenty of people who've been to combat, who've killed lots of bad guys, been lots of gunfights, who couldn't lead a horse to water. They just they don't have the skill sets to be able to communicate number one what they know or understand through experience. And so yeah, they're practitioners because they've experienced what many people train for, but that doesn't mean they're good professors at teaching that. There's a difference. I consider myself a professor because I have an open mind to learning and I don't teach bullshit. I teach fundamentally things that I've seen make sense through experience from scientists, from philosophers and practitioners. Okay, so there has to be a great a good and great balance. So Exactly. Participation does not equal proficiency. So here's the danger, right? The danger is when when you have individuals, right, who haven't full spectrum understood the complexities of the uh, process. For example, let's say you're a philosopher. Let's say you're a SWAT guy and you teach for a living and you have lots of people who are tactically proficient technically proficient, and you have experience, but you've never been in an active gunfight. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't teach. That doesn't mean as a student you can't learn. That just means that you are limited on on the full scope of your understanding. I've seen a lot of good law enforcement uh, instructors who teach from that basis, right? They say, hey, I've never killed anybody in real life. I've never been in a real gunfight. Let me be open and honest about that, but let me tell you what I do know, right? Let's take a scientist. Let's take a somebody who's technically proficient and they understand how to run a gun on a flat range. They shoot steel, they shoot paper. They're really good at it. Well, that person, as long as they're upfront and honest about the process, they say, hey, I look, I, I've been shooting for this many years. I'm technically proficient. I'm, I'm a grandmaster in IPSC and USPSA. Then, then you have a valid soapbox to stand upon. The problem I have is when you take a scientist or you take a philosopher and they teach full spectrum the understanding of tactics from beginning to end without experiencing the practitioner element of it, the experienced element of it, that then you run into problems because the people who listen take them at full value but not understanding the complexities of the full problem set. Here's an example. Let's say you're a professional shooter. You shoot for a living. You shoot steel and paper for a living. Let's say you're Rob Latham. You're Rob Latham and you're teaching a group of special operations guys. And then you're talking about shooting paper and you're talking about shooting uh, uh, steel targets during competition. And then you start going down a rabbit hole about lethal engagements with human beings. Well, number one, you don't have that experience so I wouldn't spend too much time on it. But what if, you're, what if you, you build a business model based off of that? So people who are educated are going to listen to you and go, oh, hell, he knows what he's talking about. But what if you don't know what you're talking about? What if that's not the reality because you haven't faced that reality by, by fighting or combating somebody in real life? The problem I have is when you haven't injected real combat stress and, and look, I don't mean combat as in Iraq, Afghanistan stress. I mean combat as in fighting another human being with a weapon system. Then you really don't understand the entire complexities that are involved. Um, maybe you could 
theorize it. Maybe you could educate yourself about the science, but unless you've actually experienced that, it's hard for you to fi- find a foundation or justify that that uh, that uh, teaching block without that foundation. And so, when when I was in special operations, we listened intently to Rob Latham. I've trained with Rob Latham. I've ta- I've trained with Todd Jarrett. I've trained with some of the best shooters in the world. But I I listened to the the uh, uh, the practitioner. I've listened to the scientist. I've listened to the philosopher who has experience in their own genre. The best versions of those who understand their sliver, their niche, and then they stick to that. The problem I'm seeing on social media is you have an influx of philosophers and scientists teaching like they're practitioners, right? And so the danger in this is the people who are listening to that one-minute clickbait, right? Because you're spinning it off, and you're, you're a scientist, right? You're a flat ranger. You, you take one minute, and you try to highlight the most dynamic shit possible in that one minute. Well, guess what? All those kids and all those potential people that are listening to you are being influenced in the wrong direction. My best expression of this is... Um, you know, it's training scars and bad habits, but my, ex- my best expression of this is a practitioner. Let's say you're a practitioner. Let's say you're a member of the special operations community and you teach retracted gun, okay? Retracted gun, remember, retracted gun is drawing your pistol, shooting it retracted off your hip, right? And shooting close proximity to defeat a, uh, a target or defeat a human being. And you're not giving the gun up by presenting it in alignment to where it could be taken away or it could be combated against. You're retracting it to avoid the confrontation of getting tangled up with somebody trying to battle over your gun. Well, let's say you're a, you're a civilian. Let's say you have no experience in firearms. And let's say you watch this one-minute clip. High-speed-ass music, dynamic filtering, looks epic, slow-mo shooting, all this badass stuff, SIL team, whatever. Right, and I'm not picking on seals. I'm just using this as an expression. Okay, so let's say you watch that. Now you start to do it on your own. You train. You get that gun and you retract it and you shoot the the target in close proximity and then you highlight it and you express that to your friends through videos and you're super motivated. Okay, now let's take that tactic that you just learned. You expressed and you spread the good love. Okay, now let's talk about that tactic specifically. Let's say you're in a bar. And let's say you're in a bar in America and somebody grabs you by your throat. What's your reaction, right? When you train motor skills, which is a, a segment of muscle memory, you're basically uh, segmenting motor units that are referencing uh, thoughts with physical movement, right? This neurological attribute where it's an immediate action drill. So now, you're looking at that tactic, and my question would be to you, what, what is the go criteria for shooting somebody, for point shooting somebody retracted? So somebody grabs you by the throat, and then you grab that gun, you draw it, and then you retract it, and you shoot that dude, and you kill him. In most states in America, you'd be in prison for the rest of your life. At a minimum, you'd be charged with manslaughter. More than likely, you'd be charged with murder. So when is it appropriate? Well, you would ask yourself, um, oh, I wouldn't do that. That's obvious. I'm not going to do that. Do, do you know that you're not going to do that because you've trained it? Because do you understand decision-making make, under stress and how it operates? No. You wouldn't know because 
most of us don't take it seriously, right? Because if, if you've asked yourself, in, even in listening to this, you go, no, I certainly wouldn't do that. Who, who would do that? Well, then you haven't thought it through. My, question, my next question would be, so when would you do it? Well, when I was in combat, where the rules and engagement allow me to do things like that. So if somebody grabbed my gun, I try to pull it away and we're fighting for a gun in combat, I'm shooting that dude in his face because I'm fighting a terrorist who, who potentially could have an S vest, who would be tangled with the gun. I would certainly not combat that dude. I would not uh, handle that with my hands and let go of my gun. I'd shoot him. The rules of engagement, the ROE, would allow me to do that. Now, we're in America. The, the rules of engagement are different. And a lot of the states, um, and, I, and I say a lot sparingly, you can stand your own ground. But when are you going to use that tactic? So the, the, que- the question would be, when is it appropriate to shoot somebody retracted? And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because in that one minute, you didn't get the reason why, but you got the highlight reel of why. And so what's damaging is if I can't talk about it in depth and then train it in depth and then you took that sliver of information, you took it to the flat range and then you train it yourself, you may be committing a tactic to muscle memory that you might do on impulse because you thought that was the right answer when it was completely the wrong answer. And now your ass is sitting in prison because of a one minute video you saw on social media. So the problem is we are not lining out the complexities of what these tactics mean in real-life situations. It's a block of instruction um, that requires a longer form of discussion, okay? So what the problem I have is when you express yourself in tactics without explaining the why, you're setting people up for failure. So let's take the argument. Let's say it's a threat to your life. Let's say you're in close proximity to somebody, and then you have a gun in your waistband, appendix carry, and then they grab you by the throat, and you combat them away, and you're in close proximity, and they go to reach for a gun, and then you draw your pistol, and then you have a decision to make. Well, one, if I grab my gun and go for my gun, you're committing to the long haul. You're about to go down a road that nobody really wants to go down. And then you're about to blaze down another human being. And my question would be, are you prepared for that? Are you willing to flip the switch to be ready for war and commit to it? And I remember being a special operations guy, right? I remember having anxiety until the first dude I killed in combat because I wasn't really sure if I could do it. Could I really do it? Because it's so easy for the scientist, right, to run around a flat range and smoke steel and smoke paper. But are you prepared to kill another human being to defend your life, to defend other life? I don't know. And there's a whole bunch of other things that I would teach you beyond your ability to draw a pistol, align it, and break a shot outside of that to be prepared to kill another human being. But we don't talk about that. So, when you go to draw your gun and you're going to shoot retracted, well, there's a, a whole bunch of variables there. One of them being, if you go to commit to the pistol and the guy puts his physical hands on you in close proximity, you are fucked. You are screwed. You know why? Because now you're on the floor of a bar fighting for a pistol that the other person knows you have and now 
let's say they're going for the draw and you anticipated that their hand movement going to their waistband was a movement towards a gun. So then you go to draw your gun, but they're smart. They grab your hands because they're in close proximity. Remember, if you're in a close proximity to somebody, there's a couple options. It's one, stay in close proximity or break and clear distance because you need to be able to clear, remove yourself to be able to take a clean shot as opposed to being in close proximity where you commit to it and they physically put their hands on you. Not not only that, but let's say you don't have the time. Let's say you're in close proximity to somebody and they go to draw their pistol appendix carry. Are you going to draw your pistol and race them? Maybe not. Because maybe the consideration is that you go after them and you go to pin their hands to their body. Because if you don't, and then you commit to drawing your pistol on your own, you're in a race for your life, and there is no advantage versus disadvantage. In fact, I would say you're more at a disadvantage because you're behind the power curve. So now think about that one single tactic. Think about the decision-making matrix behind that. It's very complex. In fact, we were working with a couple guys teaching close proximity combatants, right? Let's say you're in in that physical physical proximity. One scenario is that you back away in clear distance, right? He goes to draw, you push clear space, and then you're moving off the X um, laterally. So you have physical movement with with lateral space that you're clearing to be able to engage that guy with good alignment so that you're bringing the holster out and then you're pushing the gun and then breaking the shot. That's one tactic. The other tactic is he goes to draw, you collapse his hands on his physical body, and then at, po- at some point you, when you have the opportunity, you clear space because you don't want to fight over a pistol on the ground of a bar. And then the other uh, uh, justification is you, you think there's a, a attack coming, and then instead you retract your gun and you break shots from your hip. But I would say out of all those specific tactics, the last thing you sh- the the uh, last tactic I would choose is shooting that gun retracted. When would you shoot that gun retracted? Well, having experience and doing this with a carbine before in real life, and then seeing my buddy do it in the same room with a pistol, I will tell you that shooting a gun retracted is only really relevant when you're in combat and your carbine or your your primary goes down and you have to fight for your life with your secondary. So now think about that. I'm telling you as a priority, there's about two or three tactics before I would go retracted gun in close proximity. But the exception is if I have a carbine or my primary goes down and then I'm grabbing the gun to shoot retracted in close proximity. Where the rules of engagement would allow me to do that. Dude, think about that. So now think about referencing that video on a one minute. Think about how many civilians are taught retracted gun. So now when you look at that tactic, we haven't flushed out all the variables. And I'm only doing it in the 10-minute span that I've been communicating about it, but there's so much more. So the danger is behind philosophers and scientists who are teaching. Look, I have no problem with a philosopher talking about concepts and theories because they have experience in it. There's something to learn from it. And that's why I end that whole that whole uh, conversation with, can you learn from all three? Absolutely, you can. When I was in the military and I was a sniper, for example, I did a block of instruction with Brian Litz. He is known as the 
godfather of external and internal ballistics and, and communicating it intelligibly to normal human beings, keeping it simple, stupid. And so I've sitting through, I've sat through our conversations where he's broken down applied ballistics as it relates to snipers. Now, he's talking a lot about science, but he's also talking about uh, a philosophy, right? And he correlates that philosophy uh, into science and to actionables. And then you have Todd Hodnett, which I would think is the godfather of science, uh, science in the external ballistic realm, who understands um, how you could take a concept like Kentucky windage and turn it into tangible takeaways in science that apply in a scope and externally, ballistically onto a target. So they, they have taken their theories and their ideas and their processes and applied it to the practitioner, but they haven't spoke on behalf of the practitioner. So that's the difference. And then the practitioner, again, it's not the end-all be-all because you have experience in gunfights. I've seen law enforcement officers, um, even military guys who have been in one gunfight. They've been blown up once or they, they've been in one gunfight as an officer in law enforcement and then they spend their entire career educating people about that one experience. Do I think that's wrong? No, hell no. I think it's right. But what I'm saying is that's a narrow focus of attention. And so the practitioner, just because they have expertise in executing that experience doesn't mean they're the subject matter experts. It just means they have an experience. I think ultimately you have to have all three experiences in order to be a good professor, a good educator of the tactical world. Remember, the tactical industry is so convoluted with a whole bunch of people running their mouths when they shouldn't be running their mouths. And that's the problem that I have. If you're a social media influencer and you're doing a cartwheel to a gun, I have no respect for you. I, you could, it, doesn't mean that I don't, it doesn't mean that I'm writing you off. It just means I don't respect you because what you're doing is you're miseducating. You're treating a deadly firearm like it's a fucking game. And I don't think that's right. I don't think it's right. Um, if you take any other industry in, the, in a similar realm that's, that's, that's dangerous, that, that kills and affects people. It would, be like, it would be like somebody mocking somebody with mental health issues. If your job was a psychologist and you, your job was to articulate the ways, the tactics that you should utilize in order to improve your mental health, and then you're flipping around yourself around and you're mocking people who have mental health disorders, that's the equivalent to me. Because firearms shouldn't be treated like it's a fucking game because it's not. And, and, and here's, what I, here's what I've realized. Scientists and, and uh, theorists, people who are philosophers, often go down that rabbit hole because they, don't, they have never experienced what the practitioner has, which is seeing their buddy shot in the face, which is seeing innocent people killed by guns. Ask any, look at law enforcement officers. What you don't realize about the... Uh, Maybe a law enforcement officer makes an error, right? And then we, we're quick to judge because we're like, what? How could that happen? Well, you didn't see the 99.9% .9 of their job where they're affected by trauma and seeing the things they see, the worst side of our society, right? The, the, uh, the, 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 the thing, the curtain veils all the time, the darkness in between the light. They're in the darkness and they see all of that. 
So then when something happens, we point them out and we go, look, see what they did? They're, they're wrong for it, but not realizing that they've been exposed to 99.9% of their job is seeing the shit that nobody else wants to deal with. And so they don't joke around when it comes to, to firearms for the most part that I've seen. And so what I, what, the entire point of this conversation is I want you to look at the people that treat firearms uh, the wrong way. And I want you to judge them because I want you to make good educational decisions on who you train with, who, who you allow to mentor you when it comes to defending your life. There's plenty of people out there, and I don't mean to sp- speak on this viciously and uh, demonize people that are out there. Look, I get it. People have to make money. And they're doing things for popularity. They're doing things for their own empowerment. They're doing things because they need to make um, more money uh, for their business. But the reality is um, all this gun play, is, it should be socially unacceptable. I mean, when, you're, when you take a pistol and you make out with it like it's a, it's a person because it's so badass and cool to do that because it gets you more likes, I have no respect for you. And, and, and some people go, I don't give a shit. I don't want your respect. But when it comes to the industry, the tactical space, the tactical industry, we should be more responsible. It gives it it gives me uh, it gives me anxiety to see the way we treat our tactical industry and the way we allow people to get away with the shit they get away with. Okay, with this this isn't the uh, early 1900s. We're not trick shooting off of ponies. We're not shooting balloons and apples off of people's heads. Um, the, the gun industry, one, as a 2A supporter, as a second uh, amendment supporter, we should take firearms more seriously as an industry, as a community, as a culture, because it means validity in our voice when we talk about firearms. What people don't realize is, you know, in the statistics that were given, a lot of people are killed by firearms every single year. 60% of that total number, which is in the tens of thousands, 60% of that is by suicide, but nobody talks about that. Nobody discusses that, 60%. So it's not recklessly people shooting themselves or shooting others, it's people killing themselves. So when we take weapon systems and we want to be taken more serious by the left or by who, whoever it may be, uh, when we're fighting and defending our rights to bear arms, we should speak from a voice of consistency of validity, and not ask clownery. I just made that up. Clownery, clownery, made it up. Uh, I'll get off the high horse. That shit fires me up, though. I wanted to lay that out for you guys because uh, I do take it seriously. I mean, it's something that um, we should all take seriously because it's not a fucking game. You know, it, everybody treats it like a game until they're the practitioner in the war. I wonder, I wonder if a lot of these guys who play these g- games with guns and they highlight these guns like it's a fucking game, and then they go to war and lose their buddies on the battlefield, if they feel the same way. Or if they teach law enforcement who's been affected, grossly affected by the misperception um, of, of law enforcement officers in the field, if they would treat it the same. Or if they were in the line of, line of work where people's lives depended on their firearm and they were killed in the line of duty, if they would treat it the same. So... End to the end all be, be all. It's not a fucking game, guys. It's real life. There's something to learn from philosophers, from scientists, and practitioners. It's just 
we need to look at the tactical industry and space and treat it a lot differently and hold fucking people accountable. One of the things uh, I explained and not and the and not wanting to really go to the shot show, which next year there's, there's a promise I'm going to shot show, but I'm gonna have a uh, a hotel room or a house a VRBO and I'm gonna set up a podcast room because I'm gonna. I'm going to do one week of podcasting with a whole bunch of uh, scientists, philosophers, and practitioners. Um, one of the reasons I never went um, as a civilian is because I'm not a big fan of the space because uh, it's a space that really takes advantage of special operations guys that I've seen it do it, and that and that uh, isn't uh, the most ethical space that I've seen. And to each their own. There's a lot of companies out there that are doing really right. Uh, they're educating right. Their their products are, are great. Um, and so it's not a blanket statement. It's just I've had bad experiences, and that's the reason why um, I don't I don't often go. Um, look, guys, being a tactician is a is a uh, responsibility. I just want you guys to be uh, intelligent consumers, men and women who. You know, if, if you were going to hire a babysitter or a nanny for your kids, um, you would want to do the research and understand the complexities. Um, if you're if you're you know if you're trying to educate yourself on a subject matter, you wouldn't believe the headlines all the time. You wouldn't believe the clickbait all the time. You would do your research and understand the complexities of the you know the specific thing that you want to educate yourself on. Often we forget about. Um, uh, the reality that a lot of our ideas and thoughts come from others, and you know, and uh, we're we're used to this uh, this idea that we see something and that's fact. We hear something and that's fact. When in, when in doubt, um, research it. When in doubt, do more due diligence to understand the complexities of the situation. I'm off my high horse. I hope you guys appreciate this podcast. It's been a short one. That's not too long. I appreciate you guys tuning in on the Instagram side. If you guys want, um, thanks for thanks for sticking with me. It's uh, 60 people on here. Feel free to ask questions, and I'll answer a few questions on Instagram. I'll let you guys know I did a uh, podcast for East or uh, e- Eastman's uh, Journal, the uh, Hunting Journal, and uh, Eastman's Elevated uh, pod- Podcast, which is a great p- podcast. I spoke to my good buddy Brian this morning on that podcast, and it should be out. We talked about the Go Rig Challenge. The Go Rig Challenge was exciting. Um, it was a suck fest. <laughs> it wasn't easy. When you everybody was like, "Oh, you're just doing a road trip." Well, moving from Prescott to the Canadian border, which is about 1,400 miles, with no support, meaning no gas stops, no uh, hotels, uh, no support. Period is difficult, and it was difficult. I'm not going to lie. When I hit Montana, it was two degrees in uh, northern Montana. Some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen. What I will do, and I, I promise to you guys, is I will um, consolidate all the things that I identifies, identified in problem sets and come up with solutions. Like, for example, uh, I had some light bar issues because the, I need a bigger light bar. And so I'm going to hit up Ridge and say, hey, what's the solution for this? And we'll, we'll work these things out. I will say I was impressed by transfer flow. I have a 75-gallon transfer flow tank in the back of my truck. If you guys uh, are interested in the Go Rig Challenge and extending your fuel range, check out transferflow.com. Completely, completely impressed by that setup. I mean, I went 
1,400 miles on one tank of gas, and it was awesome. All right, let me answer some questions. What real MPG did you see out there in the Cummins over the GRC? Well, hey, hey, something uh, identified on the road was the fact that the colder it gets, the higher the elevation, the more your MPG is affected. When I left Prescott, I was getting about 20 miles per gallon coming in to town as well. I got, I got that. But the closer I got uh, and the colder it got to the Canadian border, uh, the lower my MPGs. I was down to 14 MPG on the border. And so I thought I had a couple thousand miles and I didn't have that much. I had about 1,500 miles. So if you want to, if you want to increase fuel capacity, one, look at your tire pressure. Your tire pressure will increase the longevity, uh, in your, in your rig, um, and the, and the tires and increase your fuel mileage. There's kind of like a a special, you got to find that range for the PSI. It's a little complex, but like I ran 60 PSI on my 37s on the way back. That's high. That's really high. But I, I noticed the ride was stiffer. It ran smoother. And my MPGs was higher than, than the typical, which is about 45 to 55, depending on who you uh, look at. Uh, how's the book coming? The book is coming along well. I'll have it published before. I'll have it self-published before Independence Day, July 4th. I appreciate it. Everybody who's supporting me on this. If you want to, go on my story highlight on mike.a.glover. If you donate any amount of money, you'll get a PDF copy of my book on mindset. And if uh, you donate more than $100, you'll get an autographed hard copy of that book uh, delivered to your address. So thank you very much for the support on that. Um, Let me see what else we got. Mike, have you ever experienced any problems with the BCM unpinned gas blocks walking after extended use? Honestly, I haven't. I haven't used, um, well, number one, I, I run a BCM 11.5 and a 12.5, and I've never seen any issues with my 11.5. And I have two years worth of probably 20,000 rounds on that gun. No issues whatsoever. I haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, please let me know. Uh, I stand for BCM, for Bravo Company, because I'm a sponsored gunfighter for them, but also because I care about that product. And I haven't seen it fail, but if it fails, let me know so I could fix it. I'll contact Paul Buffoni, the CEO, personally and make sure that's taken care of. I love to hear about the CCTs that were embedded with you guys. Curious about their role on a team. Um, Ryan, I'll be doing some um, live feeds. I got a soft prep course, a special operations prep course this weekend. In fact, my guys are showing up at 1800 uh, this afternoon. Uh, Some of those guys might be listening right now. Uh, But we have a special operations prep course and a special operations a PDF prep course that you can get to do the physical training to prepare for CCTs, but I'll talk about that more and communicate it more. What's up, Bernie? Um, let me see what else we got. How is the output of the off-grid trick panels with cloud cover? It's reasonable, but it it it, it varies, right? Um, I was running and using the using it under cloud cover underneath the windshield, so the windshield obviously cuts UV ray uh, lights out. Um, um, so what happens is you lose some voltage or some wattage, um, voltage and wattage there when you do that. So uh, more to come. Uh, I'm a big fan of off-grid Trex power panels. I use their 28 volt or 28 watt, and I use their uh, 200 watt, and we'll be educating people more on those. Um, are you ready for Rough Rider 100? Good question, Black Gun Co. Uh, if you guys are not tuning into Black Gun Co., check them out. 
BLK Gun Co. G U N C O is a couple buddies of mine who run a company out of California. Awesome swag. I I typically run their swag. I was checking my shirt because I usually run run their shirts. Uh, check them out at Black Gun Co. on Instagram. We are ready for the Rough Rider 100. If you're not in the Prescott area and you want to come out here and justify a reason, come out to um, Prescott, Arizona, President's Day weekend. We are the title sponsor for the Rough Rider 100. It's an enduro race that's a sponsored race with all the pros that will be out here. Kids race, the youth race, the uh, the uh, teenagers race, and the adults race in different um, uh, scales leading up to the pros racing. It's going to be an epic race. We'll be the title sponsored. We'll be out there. I'll actually be coming back from the Bahamas getting stem cell therapy, which I don't want to tease it too much, um, but I'm getting stem cell therapy done in mid-February for my back. Um, but I'll be talking about that more in the in the near future. We're excited about that race. If you're out in the area, please come and see us. We'll have swag on board. We'll have a Black Gun Co. is sending us some swag. We'll have their swag on board. And I look forward to meeting you guys. Uh, curious, since you travel through the states and different laws, were you able to carry on the journey like this? I So I did carry, and I did check the uh, states. Um, most of the states leading up through Utah, Idaho, Montana are about the same. So no issues. Did you run into any issues using paper maps along the routes? Chris, good question, man. Paper maps. Oh my goodness. I'm I'm like everybody's complacent because we use GPS. It is very difficult, very difficult to navigate utilizing paper maps. One, you have to track your distance. Two, what I realized since the uh, invention of the GPS, it really recently. Uh, we have less signs on the roads to to steer you in the right direction. I actually, for 30 minutes, drove in the wrong direction, hitting the Utah border near Zion National Forest. I wasn't going the wrong direction. I was just going the longer direction. And so it was difficult. One of the things I learned is you need to, you need to you know, track that map. You need to track your mileage. And you need to track, um, uh, which will give you the the overall distance, but you need to track the time. And that will give you the estimate to be able to reference how far you've gone. Because there was instances where I was like, where am I right now? And if I didn't track the mileage and the uh, the um, the time, I wouldn't be able to get an estimate of where I was. Because, you know, it's not like it used to be where you get a, a sign every, you know, couple of miles. Now they run signs every couple hundred miles, potentially. Um, I've never seen BCM Gotflow. I own three, no problems. Just hear a lot about how it's, unnece- it's necessary to pin gas blocks on combat rifles. Look, I, as a former 18 Bravo, a special forces uh, weapons sergeant, I would agree to that. It's very important to uh, to pin gas blocks on combat rifles. Um, I haven't seen a lot of rifles fail. I did I did see a gas block fail in combat. Actually, it was because of my my fault in that lock tightening them down tighter. Um, but I will say uh, it's very important for you to pin, if not lock tight. Um, your gas blocks because of the rate of fire potentially you'll see in combat rifles um, and then just the wear and tear. Will you ever co- cover in one of your podcasts the topic of why you don't run a weapon light on your co- uh, CC pistol? Uh, shots fired. If you go on Facebook, I actually did a entire discussion on our Phil Craft Survival page on Facebook talking about why I don't run a gun light. I actually run a gun light on my bedside gun, which is a Sig, Sig Sawyer 220 a P220, which is a full-size 45, with a, a TLR light. What's interesting is, and I'll let you guys know this, um, we just started making, Steve in the back with the guys are making 
our inside the waistband pistol lighted inside the waistband holsters, our low vis holsters, uh, because we got a demand for it. A lot of people do run it. I'm not a fan of, of running pistol lights on guns because I operate mostly during the daylight. And I want the flexibility of removing that light from my gun. And so if I need a light, for example, which I often do, I don't want to have to pull my gun to use the light. It's utility. I want to use the light separate from the gun. Um, but it, I could run them in conjunction with each other. But you have to train. There's a whole bunch of considerations, but good topic. And I will do a podcast on it in detail. What was your total pre-trip investment? Hundreds. A couple hundred bucks, man. Not a lot of money. Uh, if you want to see the whole build and the lead up, I'm going to make the YouTube video this weekend, but check out IGTV at Phil Cross Survival and you guys can see it. Uh, I saw it's, it's cheesy. I saw you rode your Jeep, man. I'm glad you and the missus are okay. And sorry to see that you, uh, you rolled it. Uh, by the way, loved your segment on deviation podcast. Thank you, Ron. If you guys are interested in great podcast, the deviation podcast, my good friend Paige in Utah runs that podcast. Please check that out. Uh, Johnny Primo, Courses of Action. My buddy was on there recently. Um, I've been on it before. Kurt, from Phil, who used to work for Phil Craft, has on, been on there. It, please check it out. It's worth uh, the time. Would you change anything about your canning after that trip? Um, I, I'm assuming you mean the canning and jarring that I did prior. Um, I ate four jars of pickles, just to let you guys know, on the trip. Good, good for your gut biome. Um, I didn't let it settle for the four or five weeks, and they were delicious. Uh, I think that's what you mean by that. I sent a DM about this. Something I discovered thinking about this whole abortion thing is that if you're having twins, you could legally kill the child um, that would come after the firstborn. Uh, yeah, you could. And you know, if if you guys aren't tracking this, and people have said, "Oh man, you're you're getting a little controversial." Well, let me get controversial. I want to speak my mind on things that I believe in. Look, here, here's, my, here's my thinking. I'm never going to run for politics, so I, there's, no, there's no bias in, in my thinking behind this. This is literally my opinion. And I, I know there's different versions of uh, information out there, and people are entitled to their opinions. Here's my opinion on this whole topic. So New York has allowed the, uh, the, between mothers and doctors to, to uh, terminate a baby up to the time of birth, even giving birth potentially, uh, meaning, or giving, uh, being in labor, you could terminate a child because of what's deemed um, unsafe or unhealthy or, I forget the exact verbiage, and I apologize for that because it's, uh, it's not on, uh, the, the verbiage is not readily available. But in, in essence, it means that uh, it's somewhat subjective, right? You could, you could literally go to a doctor and say, I, "I'm just not having uh, a good time. My mental health is affected." And then, if the doctor agrees that it's compromising your health, they could terminate the child. So there's no consideration for the child. The consideration is for the the mother. And look, there is situations where obviously the bot, the 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 the, ba- the baby is potentially compromising the life of the mother. But what I what I am what I have been educated on is in the third trimester, there is no and 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 I, I think I could say that confidently, there's rarely none or none, period, no um situations in which the child would need to be terminated that late into birth. Uh that can't be fixed um by some other means. Meaning abortion isn't an option. You could, there's a whole bunch of things that you could do to uh, fix the situation besides aborting the baby. So my problem with the law 
is one just like with with uh, abortion period not everybody abuses the system but if you look at the statistics there's a lot of states specifically New York and California and others but specifically them that have used abortion as a means to um terminating children uh because people were lazy and they want to use it as a birth control method it's not it shouldn't be but it is um used as a birth control method so now you take those same people and 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 I'll call them out they're just people but they're impoverished they have mental health issues and then they have doctors who are aligned with this cuz it's the the um medical industry is a business and then they start terminating children who are in their third trimester who are literally human beings evolved completely evolved um and um they start killing them well that's not right and so there should be circumstances in which that that should take place but the verbiage should, should allow that conversation to take place and the circumstances should be it shouldn't be a blanket law where 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 the governor of New York stands on his high horse and says this is a victory for women. Well, if if justifying loopholes where people can actually kill their children that are fully developed is a victory, there's something fucking wrong with you. I mean, I, I don't know how else to put that. Um. Yep. I, I will be doing the Bahama treatment with live stem cell. Um, and I will be doing podcasts and all kinds of information on that. I'll be spending Valentine's Day weekend there uh, getting that knocked out. Uh, thank you, uh, Johnny Primo. Jesus, you're handsome. Do you feel safe with me in the same state? I do feel safe. I know you're a QRF an hour and a half away. Um, hey, guys, that's all I got for the podcast. Uh, I want to say a big shout-out to everybody who's who uh, watched the GoRig Challenge. Um, big shout out to, to everybody who's a supporter of Philcraft. Thank you for supporting us without you guys. We couldn't do what we do. Thank you very much. Um, go rig challenge is up on at Fieldcraft survival on IGTV. Uh, if you guys are interested in, 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 uh, saving 10%, use the, the coupon code. I always put this out to my Instagram uh, followers, but use Mike to save 10%. I appreciate all the support that you guys give us, man. It makes me, uh, proud and happy to do this for a living and to provide this kind of content for you guys. Um, I had a great experience with the Go Rig Challenge. Lots of content that was extracted. Um, next week on the podcast, we'll have Phil Heath, uh, Mr. Olympia. We'll have Mr. Mr. Phil Heath on the podcast next week. Looking forward to that and all the upcoming podcasts we have. Uh, I appreciate you guys. If you guys have anything, please hit us up at info at philcraftsurvival.com. In the near future, we have a whole bunch of courses. Check it out at philcraftsurvival.com. If you're interested in supporting this uh, podcast, go to Venmo at Philcraft. Donate $1, $2, $1,000, whatever you can. Uh, we, it, it is all on uh, the listeners. We're like NPR here, man. We just, we're, we're being supported by the listeners, and we appreciate you guys' support. I love you guys. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive. <laughs>